Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com so here's the difference between us jl this is how cool uh-huh. you are relatively you stood next to courtney love at a nirvana show i was next to gwyneth paltrow at a Coldplay show so that that might be us in a nutshell <laughs> that's funny that's funny Hi, everybody, and welcome to our show, Is It Serious?, a conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor talk. I'm Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune, my friends call me JL, and I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. In addition to being a physician, I'm also a healthcare entrepreneur and investor, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone. And I'm Dr. Mark Lewis. I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself living with a hereditary tumor syndrome. So I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table. All right. So, Mark, I saw you last week. I've been a a bunch of days between then and today. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. So this is uh, Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. So I've been doing a lot of uh, press uh, around that. And I've learned it is quite difficult to talk to people about their colon, about stool. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I have really crossed the line with my my kids. One of them is a teenager. And I think this is pretty much the most embarrassing thing they can see <laughs> their father doing on TV. I have caught a lot of flack for it at home. Got it. Did you get local media like NBC, Salt Lake, or yeah. that kind of and stuff? Yeah. Actually, mm-hmm. today, today I was at the TV station with the Lieutenant Governor, wow. uh, who, as it turns out, I don't entirely sure her security detail thought I was uh, uh, <laughs> supposed to be there. I got some sort of side eye from gentleman who kept touching his uh, earpiece. And uh, anyway, but I, I'm here and I'm at, thrilled to be talking to you, pal. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, I actually had a colonoscopy uh, two months ago, so I'm doing oh. my part. So uh, hopefully. Good for uh, you. Thank you. Thank you. I, the colonoscopy part is not bad. Once they give you the propofol, you know, nothing, nothing matters. But uh, it's the prep beforehand that's the, the tough part of it. So, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. So today we have a special episode and we wanted to take time out from our usual structure and share more of our personal stories. As we've been creating and recording the podcast, I've talked about me being my father's caregiver during his battle with cancer. And in other episodes, you've heard a little bit about Mark's journey with cancer. I know I have more questions for Mark, as I'm sure you all do. So today we're going to hear more of Mark's story and his family's experience with cancer. So our question of the day is, Mark, can you tell us about your personal journey with cancer and what you learned from it? Now, before we begin, I want everybody to know that Mark published an amazing piece. Thank you. 
in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. The title is Gain of Function, Empathy for the Uncertain Patient with Cancer, uh, which is a story of his diagnosis as well as his father's. And I have to say, it's just like unbelievably beautifully written. And uh, I, I was just so impressed. And, and Mark, I mean, what, what was your undergrad? You had to have some kind of like liberal arts because, I mean, that's really well written. Well, I had your classic double major in okay. uh, biology and classics. So ah, I always okay. knew that, you know, if I if I uh, couldn't find a place in the medical world, that I would, of course, have a job security in, you know, ancient Greek scholarship. So that was my that was my backup plan. <laughs> that sounds good. Well, you know, it's interesting. When I was in at Columbia for medical school, I took a class on narrative medicine that was led by a well-known yeah. physician in the space, a woman named Rita Charon. And we did a lot of this, a lot of writing about our experiences, about the patient's experiences. And I have to say, it was like, for me, the like the most fun and therapeutic part of medical school and probably the most impactful, memorable and fun part for me, except for maybe the anatomy lab. So I really enjoy that. And and before you start talking, I just want to give everybody your, your citation. So it's the Journal of Clinical Oncology, volume 29, number 22, pages 3103 to 04. And the date is August 1st, 2011. So more than 10 years ago. That's right. So thank you so much for that plug, Jalen. I will say, I think there's a little bit of a, a false dichotomy that that medicine is is all about science and not about the humanities. I actually think the art of medicine is very much rooted mm -hmm. in the humanities. And it's funny you talked about narrative medicine. Today, I want to tell a story. And the most important thing to know about my story is that it is a family affair. If our listeners hear anything today, it's not so much the specific details of my own narrative. It's what they can take away and apply to their own circumstances. And, and it really, I hope this will compel them to learn as much as they can about the medical histories of their relatives. Mm -hmm. you know, it says in my intro, I'm affected by a hereditary tumor syndrome. So I have to talk about my family. Mm -hmm. So Tolstoy wrote, and I think it's actually come to be known as the Anna Karenina principle that, quote, all happy families resemble one another, <laughs> but each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And mm -hmm. I'm going to argue the opposite. Uh, you know, I'm coming for you, Tolstoy, you long-winded <laughs> hack. That's right, Leo. Watch out. You're on notice. Because um, here's what I think. I, I think the, the unhappiness, I think it actually can be seen over and over again as as patterns of disease. For sure. And you just have to be able to recognize them. And you know, not just you and I as doctors, JL, but but patients and people can start to get the sense, you know what, there is something wrong in our family and it can't just be bad luck. So when I think about my own health, um, I actually do it in the context of what's happened to the generations of the men who came before me. That's who I'm gonna tell you about today. And I see a pattern that pattern is a syndrome. And I've described it as what happens when you look at the stars and instead of seeing a thousand disconnected points of light, now you can see a constellation. That's, that's kind of what happened to me. And that's the kind of pattern recognition that I think we're looking for. Got it. All right. And look, you know, for sure, as you think about uh, addiction, you know, these family patterns are, are are very, very obvious and apparent with transmission of intergenerational trauma, you know, codependency, co-addiction in the family. So that's that's definitely a big part of what we deal with in, in what I do. 
And, and speaking of obvious, what might not be obvious is we're going to start today in Belfast in the 1960s. I bet you didn't see that coming. Belfast, 1960s, the, tr- the troubles. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Again, I, I just think that family history is so important, and it's so important why, why physicians spend so much time thinking about family history when we're working with patients. That's right. So let me tell you about my granddad. So my, my grandfather was an incredible man. Uh, he grew up in Wales. So now we're in a different part of the United Kingdom. And he grew up at a really grim time when the only option for most working men was to go down into the coal mines. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, his own father, so my great-grandfather, was unfortunately a very violent alcoholic. Mm. And my my grandfather really kind of went completely the other direction. So he, he obviously swore off uh, alcohol. He was teetotal. But more importantly, he was so deeply reliant on his Christian faith to sustain him through all this mm-hmm. that he actually felt compelled to spread the good news of the gospel. He became a preacher when he was 14 years old. Wow. Right? I mean, he traveled around Wales ministering as a teenager. When I was a teacher in the, a teenager in the 90s, I was mopey and I was listening to grunge, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I remember the early 90s well. You know, a quick factoid, I saw Nirvana at the Roseland Ballroom three months before Kurt Cobain died. So that's one of my wow. cool stories. And it was also like an amazing golden era for hip hop and rap, right? If you think about Nas, Wu-Tang, Dr. Dre, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, Public Enemy, the Fugees, within like a three or four year period, you have some of the most seminal people pieces of music recorded during that period of time. So great, great time for music. Oh, that is incredible. I think the only through line here, and it's a very shaky moment, would be like Nirvana's heart-shaped box video. I don't think would have sat very well with my granddad, but um, regardless. So so his travels took him from uh, Wales to, to Northern Ireland. And then he became, rather than an itinerant preacher, he settled mm-hmm. at a very well-known parish in Belfast. And he was there in the 60s, and you already referenced it, when the troubles erupted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was a a conflict between Northern Ireland and the Republic to the South. And one of my granddad's messages was, this was never about uh, a division of Christianity. It it Mm -hmm. would sometimes be portrayed as Protestantism versus Catholicism, but this is really always a conflict of politics and nationalism. Right. He was preaching about this, literally and figuratively, one of the most important religious voices in this tempest. And in his public speaking, began to falter. He just physically couldn't do it. Hmm, That's interesting. You know, you typically think about anxiety or stage fright, but once somebody starts saying like physically they can't do it, that raises some other concerns. Yeah. So this was not performance anxiety. And and as Mm -hmm. best as I can reconstruct it now as a doctor, what I think was happening is I think a cancer was Mm. growing in his upper chest Mm -hmm. and compressing the nerves that control the voice box. And you and I know Uh, this, but it's not that intuitive, I don't think. mm -hmm. And one of the reasons these details are also sketchy, JL, is number one, this was decades ago and the Mm -hmm. paper records are long gone. And number two, and I think this is more critical, this was an era where people really didn't talk about cancer. Mm -hmm. In fact, for years, the New York Times wouldn't publish the phrase breast cancer because it was doubly scandalous. And it's just, it's unbelievable to think of how far we've come, but it's also tragic to think of what, not too many generations ago, what they were dealing with. It was so oppressive. It's, a, it's amazing. Again, that that factoid, I've heard you mention that before, that, you know, the New York Times would not print the word breast cancer. It, it's it's mind blowing given how much we talk about it now, how much, you know, Susan G. Komen has entered our world and how many fundraisers we do in 5K runs. It's fascinating to think about how much our world has changed, probably in what, 20, 30 years, not much time. 
Yeah, exactly right. That the advocacy has been so powerful. Um, so I'm sorry to say that my granddad lost his life to this mysterious illness, but you know it also had robbed him of his power in the pulpit. And he was such such a, an important figure in Northern Ireland at the time. Mm-hmm. Regardless, and I think inspired by his example, both of his sons, so my dad and my paternal uncle, mm-hmm. followed him in, into the ministry. Okay, so that was Northern Ireland, 1960s. Now we're going to fast forward to the 80s, so 1987. Okay. My dad isn't just a pastor, although that's a fine calling. He's also gotten into academics. He's a doctor of theology. He's a theologian. Mm. And he was invited from his post at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland to come and teach at a seminary in Austin, Texas. And that's how I got to the States, is this professional journey. And one of the things that happens when you immigrate to this country is you get a chest x-ray. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, you know, my parents are immigrants, so they got their chest X-ray as well. And for people who may not know, it's actually screening for tuberculosis. It's really a public health measure. Many immigrants who are coming to the United States don't have TB themselves, but may have been exposed at some point. So it's really been the part of our screening process for decades. And it's really not a new thing that was invented by COVID. Right. Yeah. Airborne illness breaking a big problem long before COVID. And to be honest with you, Jail, I think a lot in my professional practice about bad news. Obviously, bad news and oncology are, are going to go together far too often. For one thing, if you just stop and think about the phrasing, the English idiom, you deliver good news. Uh-huh. You break bad news. There's like this implicit acknowledgement that you're doing something like verbally violent. You're shattering peace of mind. And I really think of it like a fracture that never quite heals the same way. Once that person hears that, they are never quite going to be the same. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I mean, you know, it can be very difficult to to hear that bad news, particularly if you're not prepared, right? And I think part of our training is trying to help people, if we're going to give them bad news, to really be in a position to, you know, have them sitting down, having them around loved ones, so that this information that you're giving them is not doubly traumatic, right? And I think that's a very important part of this. If I can be very honest with you, one of the things I found most affecting about your story with your father is that the doctor who thought he was extending you a professional courtesy by showing you, you know, your dad's scans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and I say this very carefully, it may have actually done you a disservice as your father's son, because that is not a normal way to receive that news, right? I totally agree. Yeah. And you know, in our case, we got a call from the embassy that on the one hand was like, hey, you know, Professor Lewis, you can come to the United States. You don't have tuberculosis. But then it was almost as like an aside Uh, Just this kind of postscript. They're like, by the way, no TB, but but something is wrong in your lungs and it needs to be addressed when you get to America. And then they just hung up the phone. Oh, my God. I can only imagine the uncertainty that comes with that. I can only imagine. You know, it was so disconnected from any sort of like emotional meaning. There was no I'm so sorry to tell you this. That was it. Right. Mm -hmm. So so we landed in America. So we went from Scotland to Texas. (laughs) So already a bit of culture shock. Uh, the food is is flavorful. There's a burning light in the sky. It was it was very different. <laughs> yeah, l- listen, I I live in New York, and when I go to Texas, there's culture shock, you know. <laughs> and from and for my family, you know, my parents came from a tropical yes. country. They come to New York during the winter time. It's sub freezing temperatures. There's snow on the ground. I mean, it's it's a real culture shock. Yeah, so we had like a reverse journey across the latitudes, you know. But uh-huh. in our case, what was almost the most jarring was suddenly engaging with the U.S healthcare system, which is obviously one of the subjects of our podcast. And mm-hmm. even now, 
all these years later, and I've obviously been here for such a long time, I still can't escape my perspective as a foreigner that medicine and commerce here have become commingled to a very uncomfortable degree. And, and I want to be very clear about this. My dad's doctors saved his life. Mm -hmm. They prolonged his time with us, but they did so at considerable cost. And that's just not something we were used to. And I know it sounds so naive. We weren't used to paying for healthcare. Right. There are many, many downsides that we can discuss later. The inefficiencies of a nationalized healthcare service, worrying about the cost of care is not one of them. And the other thing I'll say, JL, now I'm looking back on this through a professional lens. As an oncologist, I see scans almost literally every day. It is hard. I think I've almost become jaded. It's hard to surprise me with how a scan looks. But maybe because I'm so connected to it, I've seen my dad's chest X-ray, mm -hmm. and it is shocking. Mm. It's not just a little abnormal. Mm -hmm. It is so far out of the ordinary. So as you know, when we do a chest X-ray, black, that's air, mm -hmm. because the X-ray is having no problem, no resistance passing through that. And then what's white on the X-ray is solid. And my dad's right lung was like almost completely opaque. Wow. Something solid was occupying that entire airspace. And it was a mass, it was a tumor. And here again, language and semantics matter so much in medicine. And, and it's also incredible for us to think as docs, how patients are gonna hang on our every word at these really critical junctures in their care. Because it was described to my father, mm -hmm. a very scholarly but non-medical man, it was described to him as a lung cancer. and. He anchored on that diagnosis, frankly, I think his entire life, mm. and it sent him spiraling into, and you can say this was Protestant guilt, but into self-recrimination. He had never smoked, but he had incurred some secondhand smoke exposure, and he was like, did, did I do this? Did I somehow inflict this? And, you know, that, um, that guilt, that's the last thing you need on top of a cancer diagnosis. For sure. And, and look, we can do a whole episode on unnecessary shame and stigmatization. And even though we've come so far and become so much more comfortable about talking about these things, it still happens. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, as you know, I'm, I'm still a runner. I still do a lot of races. Uh, for many years, they used to do a race here in New York, a, a, a four-miler named after a guy named Thomas Lebrecht. I think he had worked at Morgan Stanley. Uh, he died of lung cancer, but he never smoked. And everywhere you looked in terms of the, the, the marketing for this race, the marketing for the foundation, they're like, hey, this is a guy who died of lung cancer, but he never smoked, you know? And it's just amazing, like this, this compulsion that people have to say that he wasn't the cause of his death, you know? And it's, you know, again, it's, it's still very prominent. It's still a big issue we deal with. I actually think it's set back the care of lung cancer. And I hate to say this, but they're years behind the care of other cancers because of this, mm -hmm. this awful, awful stigma. Regardless, in my dad's case, it wasn't even anatomically correct to say lung cancer. The cancer hadn't started there at all. It had hmm. started in his mediastinum. So for our audience, that's a technical term. And mediastinum is a central compartment of your chest. Just imagine your body is divided into different chambers, if you will. And it contains a lot of valuable, uh, valuable structures or important structures. And basically everything that isn't in the lungs, like the heart and its vessels, the esophagus, etc., is in the mediastinum. Yeah. So you're in New York. The mediastinum is Manhattan. It's high value real estate. There's a lot <laughs> of important stuff in a very, very small area. And I want to be clear, even though that's where my dad's cancer started, because it extended into his lung, he still had his entire right lung removed. Mm. Um, he actually had a beautiful phrase for it because he had a left lung. He called it the slow puffing process of proving his right lung's redundancy, which I thought was such a beautiful <laughs> turn of phrase. However, 
that was an expense. That was $30,000 wow. that he had to put on his American Express card because theologians aren't exactly rolling in cash. And then the final thing that we'll get to is while it was necessary, it wasn't sufficient. It did not entirely get rid of his tumor, some of which was still stuck behind his breastbone. Wow. What, what an introduction to the United States, right? Welcome to America. Your cancer will cost 30000 USD. Will that be MasterCard, Visa, Amex, or Diners Club? I mean, it's crazy. Nice Diners Club reset. I like that. Um, it also reminds me, there was, a, there was a cartoon strip, If Breaking Bad occurred in any other country, and it was just like Walter White getting all of his stuff paid for and never descending into making meth. So anyway, I don't always love military metaphors in oncology jail but one way of thinking about cancer treatment is weaponry mm -hmm. you know being aggressive towards the cancer and there's three basic weapons number one surgery you cut out the cancer number two radiation you burn the cancer and number three chemo you poison the cancer yeah. And, you know, I look, I, I think it is a challenging analogy, but I think it does make it easier for the patient to understand or individuals to understand. I think it gives people agency and a feeling that they have some control, that their troops and maybe their their army, with, including their doctors and other people, are fighting this invasion that's happening in their body. So I think, you know, I, I think it gives people something positive to hang on. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so my dad moved on to getting radiation. So he's had the lung surgery, his whole lung's gone. There's still cancer stuck behind his breastbone. So that's what's getting radiated. But frankly, this was the late 80s. Mm -hmm. The way the energy was delivered, and even my colleagues now who practice radiation oncology would admit this, it was quite crude. Mm -hmm. You know, my dad would come home from his treatments. He would unbutton his shirt. He literally had a big red X on his shirt and permanent marker and then you know that was you know, on his chest too it was like a target for the firing squad and, and those mm -hmm. beams went right through him you mentioned all the important structures like it was collateral damage to his esophagus he had a brutal time swallowing mm. and it was just really really hard hard to watch that and, and i know as a son you've watched both of your folks go through radiation absolutely yeah both my folks had uh, rt as we call it radiation uh, therapy. I think these days they don't put a big X on you. I think they use like a non-permanent tattoo to, to maintain the the landmarks. Um, and, you know, the distinct image that I remember with my dad, you know, my dad had a brain tumor, so he's getting radiation to yeah. his brain. And I distinctly remember he constantly looked like he had a, um, a sunburn on his face. And yes. that was a yes. large part of the radiation, not only passing through the tumor, but coming through the skin on his face. Yeah, patients end up with like these geometric rashes and it's like the exact shape of where the radiation beam is going in. Now, yeah, just like with your folks, not only is it hard to like watch your parents go through that, it's also really gutting to know that it didn't work or at least not for as long as we would hope. So mm -hmm. a few years later, we were on a family vacation at Disney World, allegedly the happiest place on earth. <laughs> and I want my money back because my dad got this horrible back pain, like really intense, not just like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm a little sore. This was like, he was almost doubled over in pain. And we got x-rays and it showed the same cancer. So not a new bone cancer, the same cancer had traveled from where it started in his chest to his bones. Mm -hmm. And I was so young at the time, I didn't really understand what that meant, but I realized now, this was the beginning of the end. I, I realized that at that point, it was so widespread, it was so diffuse in his system that it was never entirely going away despite, despite the huge lung surgery and despite the radiation. Yeah. And, and I'll always say that one of the downsides of being a doctor, particularly as it comes to thinking about cancer, is understanding that cured doesn't always mean cured. Yeah. And actually, oncologists, if I'm very honest with you, JL, are very careful 
about using that word because mm-hmm. cure implies this is gone and never coming back. We really are very careful to use words like remission. Mm-hmm. We use phrases like no evidence of disease, usually until you get to some milestone, five years is a conventional one, where we don't think it's coming back. But to tell someone they're cured prematurely is actually an awful thing to do. And my dad clearly had not been cured. So he started chemo. Mm-hmm. And actually, in, in some ways, the, the exact chemo drugs he was given are the same ones we would use today in this precise clinical context. But what's changed is how much more tolerable they would be now. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, just to, in terms of the support of medications, medications to fight nausea, to fight low blood counts, I think, you know, people have a much better experience going through chemo than uh, they ever did before. Yeah. And thank you for saying that. I think that sometimes kind of gets overlooked. And I'll actually often use my dad's own example with my patients and say, hey, listen, this is the way it used to be. And and often they all have had a relative or some experience in the past that, of course, is going to be quite evocative for them. I'll say, you know, back in the 90s, yes, this treatment would have made you horribly ill. You might have wanted to vomit. But I'm fairly sure if I was treating a patient like my dad today, they might not even get nauseous. And I can tell you both my parents went through, nausea was never an issue. And one medication in particular on Dancitron was like a magic elixir that helped keep them safe and help them eat and be well. And and that's exactly right. And we actually have lots more drugs like that. But one thing that that was true is that, and this is again, a persistent myth, or in fact, sometimes truth about chemo, chemo decimated my dad's immune system. After his very first cycle, he had literally no white blood cells. Mm. And so he ends up in the ICU with an infection that caused a raging sepsis that nearly mm. killed him. Mm. And, and talk about timing. You talked about these anti-nausea drugs coming along in time to help your folks. This, and I'm not being hyperbolic here, this was the moment that inspired me to become an oncologist. So we were told that my dad had days to live, not because of the cancer directly, but because this infection after treatment was so overwhelming, he was so defenseless. And then his oncologist came in with a new drug, a white blood cell booster that could restore his immunity. The FDA had literally approved it that week. Wow. And now it's commonly used. There's even direct-to-consumer ads for a similar drug on TV. But, you know, it, it, frankly, even now, it has changed a little bit my perspective on the pharmaceutical companies because, yes, you can criticize their profit margins and, and all of that. But I got to be honest, as a patient, as a family member, there is nothing quite like the right drug arriving for the right patient at the right time and in the hands of the right physician. And that was my dad's doctor. He brought him back, jail from the very brink, his white blood cells returned like it was a magic trick. And I was 11 at the time, and it was as close to a miracle as anything I had ever seen. Uh, it, it reminds me to some extent that uh, Arthur C. Clarke uh, had a quote that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, right? Yes. And I, and yes. I think that's, I love these stories. It reminds me, you know, I'm a Yankee fan. I live here in New York. Mickey Mantle, when he was young, he got a, uh, uh, like a, a cut on his leg that became osteomyelitis. And fortunately oh, wow. for him, penicillin had just become commercially available and he was able to get the penicillin, get cured. Uh, otherwise, Traditionally, they, they might have had to amputate his leg, and we may never heard of Mickey Mantle. He may have never been a Yankee great. So I love those stories of the technology breaking just when people need it, you know? Yeah, it, it really is incredible. And so being saved from that episode, it gave me another three years with my dad. So, you know, the, 
really sad part is he died in, in 1994 when I was 14 years old. And I got to be honest with you, when I heard about your father's death, um, first and foremost, I just felt empathy for you as as a son. Mm-hmm. But also, I couldn't help but reflect on the lengths to which you and others involved in your dad's care went to give him an end with dignity. You talked very movingly about hospice mm-hmm. and the role it played. My dad died with what I'll call a Hail Mary attempt at another chemotherapy. And here, if I'm honest, the timing was not clearly on his side. Mm-hmm. At the time, and this sounds crazy, this chemo is still used today in breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer. At the time, though, it was made almost directly from the bark of a tree, the Pacific <laughs> You tree. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, even now patients will ask me for natural remedies. Right, right. You know, nature is red and tooth and claw, and natural doesn't mean benign. So mm-hmm. this tree bark that was, of course, you know, distilled down caused at the time profound allergic responses. The very next year in 1995, they figured out a semi-synthetic uh, solution that is much, much less likely to do this. But in 1994, when my dad got it, it caused him to have an anaphylactic reaction and he died in the hospital of a reaction to that that chemo. And you have to believe that that affected me uh, as a son, but now as an oncologist. And that's tough. And, and and to me, there's just a sense of it's just not fair, you know, you to to fight all that time and to to suffer a negative consequence from the medication. So I'm sorry to hear that story. And, um, you know, again, uh, you, you, the stories you've told about your father just in a few podcasts are are so fascinating. And, you know, he was a, he was like a natural. He's like a rapper almost the way he described, you know, his chest and, you know, this description. It sounds like a like a great person, a great man. So I'm sorry to hear about his passing. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. He, his his wordplay was was really wonderful. Um, he, he may not have had you know like say Biggie's flow, uh, <laughs> but he he was certainly very lyrical in his writing. And you know, frankly, you know the way he died, jail, and I suppose this is stating the obvious, affected me profoundly as a person. But it also gives me pause today professionally because as an oncologist, I am constantly stopping to ask myself the difference between can I do something for this person. And should I do something? And I think sometimes sometimes the most compassionate decision in oncology is to stop the toxicity and to allow whatever time remains to be dedicated exclusively to quality of life and legacy building. And sometimes when I say that, I am accused of, quote, robbing people of hope. Okay. Mm. But on the other hand, sometimes I get down to the point where I know that what I have left is far more likely to be hurtful rather than helpful. And I I have to admit that. And I actually think the brutal honesty to say that to patients is really sometimes the, the greatest kindness we can show them. Sure. And many patients may not realize or may not remember that as physicians, we take an oath. It's called the Hippocratic Oath. When I graduated from Columbia University, you know, you had all the different colleges and graduate schools. You know, the doctors were the only ones to take an oath at the time of receiving their diplomas. And in that oath, we say, first, do no harm. And I think that, uh, you know, what you're alluding to is part of our oath that we take is to we certainly want to help people. We certainly want to give them the most hope we can. But we also have to think about causing harm with the things that we do. That's exactly right. Okay, so why don't we take a break? We've had a great discussion so far and hear about how all this relates to your own health. You bet. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. 
Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So, Mark, why don't you talk to us about how your family history ties into your own case? Sure. And I'm an open book, Jail. But uh, again, I have to emphasize to the point of being a broken record that I could only have figured out by paying attention to what happened to my dad and my grandfather and also my paternal uncle, what was going on with me. So we haven't really talked about my uncle yet. Five Mm -hmm. years after my dad died, my paternal uncle, who, in addition to having been a minister, was also working as a driving instructor. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's quite a side hustle. And can you imagine, the Lord saith thou that thou shalt not make a right on red. <laughs> can you imagine That's having right. a minister as your driving instructor? <laughs> That's right. So it turns out not a great side hustle, particularly when you're losing your peripheral vision. So this is kind mm. of crazy to think about, but my uncle was literally clipping the side mirrors of parked cars. I can only imagine how he would do in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And that's really a bad look when you're the one that's supposed to be teaching good driving. But the reason this was happening, this is so fascinating to me as a doc, he had a tumor in his pituitary gland that was growing and pushing up on the nerves that connect his eyes to his brain. Wow. And that's a a very specific visual deficit that you and I would recognize, but, you know, is not immediately obvious to other folks. And in the attempt to remove this tumor surgically, which, believe it or not, usually goes quite smoothly, Mm -hmm. my uncle was unlucky enough to have a fatal complication. He died days after the operation. Oh, that's so tough and so much to endure for you and your family. So I'm sorry to hear about that as well. No, thanks, man. And You know, at this point, I'll be honest with you, this happened before I was in medical school Mm -hmm. and I was already starting to suspect, you know, is this more than a coincidence? You know, if two points make a line, this is now three men, all ministers for what that's worth, with three odd tumors in strange locations. I just didn't know enough medically to be able to put uh, the pieces of the puzzle together. Again, that's the difference between the stars and a constellation. Mm -hmm. Understood. So- I was going to tell you, my, my eureka moment actually happened, oddly enough, my first day of oncology fellowship. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'd been through medical school. I had done residency. Now I'm finally at the point where I'm in a specialized cancer. And, and first day, I wake up with this abdominal pain. It was super intense. I thought it was in the right lower quadrant of my abdomen. So I thought it was appendicitis. Mm-hmm. I did kind of wonder, is this like an extreme version of jitters? Is this a panic attack? But no, it was a high calcium level. And that is when everything clicked. Not just my own pain, because too much calcium slows down the gut and mm-hmm. gives you this condition called ileus, which is quite uncomfortable. But the fact that my dad, for his entire adulthood, long before his bone problem, had also had a high calcium. It was this tiny little detail that had never seemed important or crucial until that very moment. That's fascinating. And again, you know, so much of what we do in medicine, particularly around diagnosis, is solving puzzles and putting puzzle pieces together, which can be difficult to do if you don't know much about your own family's history. Yeah. And, you know, even in oncology, I'll be taking a family history and I'll hear something like, well, so-and-so had some type of cancer in their 70s. And I I get it. I understand that might be the highest fidelity 
reproduction, whatever you know. But what we're really looking for is granularity to make these connections. For instance, it might matter that your aunt had uterus cancer. That might actually put you at risk for colon cancer, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. in my case, it wasn't even my dad's cancer so much as his high calcium. It showed me a pattern that is called multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1. And you can kind of tell if you decode that name, what we're talking about is overgrowth of many different endocrine glands. And one feature of the syndrome is that almost everybody ends up with a high calcium right around age 30. That's exactly when I self-diagnosed. But the multiple part, it can cause other growths. It can cause growths in the pituitary, like my uncle had. And in hindsight, I think both my dad and my granddad had growths in a weird organ in the chest that you'll know called the thymus. Mm. The thymus sits behind our breastbone. It's really important for our immune systems when we're young. And then what's really maddening about this whole thing is after that, it serves virtually no purpose. So it was vestigial. It was at that point doing nothing. But I am almost convinced it was the source of the tumors that killed both my father and, and my grandfather. And then the very last organ that's affected, and this is why I'm now a gastrointestinal oncologist, is the pancreas. So that's where I eventually found my cancer. So the pancreas, that's the same cancer or same area of cancer or organ that Steve Jobs had. So he had uh, a type of cancer. These are often found sort of later in the game. But it sounds like because you were so smart, you knew exactly what you were looking for. You're able to find it early. You're far too kind. I I definitely <laughs> needed those three years of oncology fellowship. I was not done on day one. Uh, it was more of a self-revelation. But you know, to be frank, I, I will need, begging your patients and the audience, I'll need a whole separate episode to go into that because there was diagnosis, there was surgery, there was the aftermath. How's that for a cliffhanger? Mm. But but the, les- the lesson for today is that families matter. And it was only by looking back to my relatives' misfortunes that I was able to see eventually more than just bad luck. I was able to see a problem inside of me. And that went on, you know, to inspire me to to self-advocacy. I had to get over being accused of being a hypochondriac. I've had to learn how to deal with chronic illness without derailing my career. And I've had to raise a family without a genetic condition. So stay tuned on all that. Understood. And I think Mark's story inspires a couple of key takeaways and, you know, key recommendations that we like to make in every episode. So I think the first one is learn about your family history. I think that's a very important thing. And you'd be surprised at how much your family members know about their history. And I think this is particularly important for people, let's say, who've been adopted or who may not know their family history at all. Sometimes it's very useful to get that information if it's available to you. Yeah, and go as far back and uh, get as detailed as possible. Uh, and again, I realize even just a couple of generations ago, you just did not talk about this and it's not comfortable conversation at the Thanksgiving dinner table, but it is so important to know it could literally help you. Absolutely. And report what you can to your doctor. You know, sometimes your doctor may not be interested in all the little details, but sometimes knowing about the, a family history of cancer or a particular type of condition can be very, very helpful. Yeah, and I think you're well within your rights to even ask your doc, do you think there's a way this could impact, you know, how I might receive care? And again, so discuss in a sec, that does affect uh, some cancer screenings, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. So like in colon cancer, a family history of colon cancer entitles you to actually earlier screening. So that's a very important thing to understand. And there are many other examples like that in uh, in medicine. And I cannot resist the plug. As I said at the top, I've been doing a lot of press on this <laughs> recently. Everybody needs colon cancer screening, regardless of family history, no later than age 45. So JL, I'm very proud of you 
for getting your colonoscopy. Actually, where we, we, my wife and I had his and hers colonoscopies in the last <laughs> two romantic. months. So. <laughs> As a, it's, it, there, there's nothing, you realize you really love somebody when you're stumbling out of a colonoscopy and endoscopy suite under the influence of Profipol and you're looking at that person and saying, thank you very much for taking care of me, honey. I appreciate it. <laughs> in sickness and in health. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so that's all we have time for today. Thanks to Mark for telling us about his story. And Mark, thank you very much for all the detail of, about your yeah. family. It's so fascinating. And we really do look forward to part two. And thanks to our audience for tuning in. Our hope is that in sharing these stories with you, it highlights that doctors are patients and caregivers and people with families and family histories. And we have a lot to learn from each other. Mark, why don't you tell us, uh, tell everyone where we can find you? Sure. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Mark Lewis, MD. And you can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Jean-Luc Neptune. If you have any medical questions that you'd like to talk about, please feel free to reach out. You can reach us at isitserious at offscript.com, or you can call us at Offscript Health and leave a message, and we might just use it on the show. Our number is 855-AUDIO66. That's 855-283-4666. And while we love talking about medicine and healthcare, remember, the show doesn't provide medical advice. If you have any questions, make sure to ask your doctor. Thanks again, Mark. Take care, everybody. Please join us next time for Is It Serious? That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez, and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>